0: How does a fierce populist fight over monetary policy in the 19th century help us interpret our present conditions? In today's episode of Macro Peace Theater, we'll learn, courtesy of Adam Tooze. I'm your narrator, Emil Kalinowski, and today's writing comes to us from Adam Tooze's Substack. Just go to adamtooze.substack.com, go to chart book number 44, And you'll learn all about the Cross of Gold, Populism, Democratic Iterations, and the Politics of Money, posted on the 10th of October. It's a fantastic piece, so much to learn from it. You can learn so much more from Adam himself on Twitter, at Adam underscore Twos. Also, his website, Adam Twos, where you can see his recent works, TV appearances, podcasts, interviews, books. Check it out. Having behind us the commercial interests and the laboring interests and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. The address that Nebraska's William Jennings Bryan delivered at 2 p.m. on July 9th 1896 at the Chicago Convention of the Democratic Party, the Cross of Gold speech, is a stunning piece of oratory on the theme of the gold standard and the peril that this rigid monetary system poses to society. The incident is familiar to anyone with a background in American history, but when I first encountered it as a European, I was staggered. It struck me as a truly remarkable example of democratic politics engaging with the question of money. It is more than 120 years old, but everyone concerned with monetary politics today should read Brian's speech. The full text you can find online. Brian's oration culminates in these glorious paragraphs. If the gold standard is the standard of civilization, why, my friends, should we not have it? So, if they come to meet us on that, we can present the history of our nation. More than that, we can tell them this, that they will search the pages of history in vain to find a single instance in which the common people of any land ever declared themselves in favor of a gold standard. They can find where the holders of fixed investments have. Mr. Carlyle said in 1878 that this was a struggle between the idle holders of idle capital and the struggling masses who produce the wealth and pay the taxes of the country. And, my friends, it is simply a question that we shall decide upon which side shall the Democratic Party fight. Upon the side of... Idle holders of idle capital or upon the side of the struggling masses? There are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you just legislate to make the well to do prosperous, that their prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it. You come to us and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. I tell you that the great cities rest upon the broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. That is the issue of 1776 over again. Our ancestors, when but three million, had the courage to declare their political independence of every other nation upon earth. Shall we, their descendants, when we have grown to 70 million, declare that we are less independent than our forefathers? If they dare come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, We shall fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, having behind us the commercial interests and the labor interests and all the toiling masses. We shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Brian and the populist struggle with the gold standard seem particularly topical because we are, at this moment, debating the economics and politics of inflation and monetary policy. If modern monetary theory insists that monetary sovereignty is there for the taking, in America, that is a claim with a deep history. Not that Brian was an advocate of modern monetary policy but he refused to subordinate America's currency choices to the blackmail of the moneyed interests then there is the meta question set against the backdrop of recent history the fact that we are debating monetary policy at all can seem shocking in the era of 1980s and 1990s insulating monetary policy from democracy was a key priority the point Rudiger Dornbusch, the influential MIT macroeconomist, liked to insist was to put an end to democratic money. But for money to be unpolitical is not the natural order of things. It is the effect of a particular politics, a metapolitics of depolitization. As Stefan Eich shows us in his forthcoming book the currency of politics, the argument over the politics of money goes back to the ancients. The question should not be political money or not, democratic money or not. The question should be what kind of politics of money? What kind of democratic money? The William Jennings Bryan moment rose to the top of my stack in recent weeks, because I am teaching a grad class about the tense relationship between capitalism and democracy in the U.S. and Europe. Our first session was on 1896, William Jennings Bryan and the Cross of Gold speech. To be clear, this is not an American history course. The course is intended for a cosmopolitan mix of students with varied backgrounds interested in the broad theme of capitalism and democracy. The aim of the game is to highlight a series of general issues circling around the politicization of money, how popular mobilization affects the development of economic policy institutions, and ways in which politics continuously reactualizes the populist movement. The majority of the students are not historians, so rather than issues in the American historiography, who were the populists, were they racist and exclusionary, etc., what I want to encourage is an engagement with the complex entanglement of history as such. What I have in mind is Faulkner's great line that the past is never dead, it is not even past. The starting point for the silver agitation was the agonizing deflation that squeezed down on the North Atlantic economy in the late 19th century wholesale farm prices crashed in the 1870s then bounced then crashed then bounced again and then in the early 19- 1890s fell to their lowest ebb in 1896 at the moment that Bryan gave his speech wholesale farm prices were 56% below their 1869 level the period 1893 to 1896 saw the US economy racked by crisis Unemployment rocketed into the teens, and the survival of the U.S. on the gold standard was in doubt. The ultimate reasons for this deflation are complex and disputed. What the populace challenged was the decision to end the monetary chaos of the Civil War era in the 1860s by returning to gold, a move completed in 1879. Specifically, what they contested was the Coinage Act of 1873, that ended the right to have silver minted into coin. As Rockoff remarks, between 1869 and 1879, the stock of money grew at about 2.6% per year and real output at 5% per year. So the deflationary pressure from the lack of monetary growth is easy to understand. In any case, The point of this session was not so much to answer the question of what caused the late 19th century deflation as to show what folks made of it. What agitated the populists was not only the fact that silver was downgraded relative to gold, but that deflation on this scale crushed debtors. Farm income shrank. Mortgages did not. As Rockoff remarks, Although the percentage of farmland that was mortgaged was low for the nation as a whole, Western farmers were heavily mortgaged. Kansas had one of the heaviest levels of indebtedness, with 60% of taxed acres under mortgage. The promise of the free silver movement was that by breaking the link to gold and enabling the minting of silver, an expansion in the money supply would raise prices and ease the pressure on debtors. In 19th century language, inflation simply meant an expansion in money supply. Faced with the bitter hostility of the gold standard block, the free silver movement provoked intense controversy. At the Chicago Convention in 1896, there were scenes bordering on riot as advocates of the gold cause and silver took turns to demonstrate their enthusiasm. Richard Bensel, in his remarkable microhistory, brings the convention to life in vivid detail. It is akin to an ethnology of the late 19th century American politics. Bryan's speech sent the convention into convulsions. So famous was the speech that in 1921, on the 25th anniversary, Bryan made a recording, which you can hear on YouTube. As Benzel highlights, there was nothing accidental about the sensation that Brian generated. Brian rehearsed his delivery. On the eve of his performance, he remarked to his wife and a companion, So that you both may sleep well tonight, I'm going to tell you something. I am the only man who can be nominated. I am what they call the logic of the situation. Brian's confidence was rewarded, whether he was the logic of the situation or not. He carried the day and was nominated for the presidency. A few months later, he narrowly lost the election to McKinley. The gold standard remained safe, and the populist cause suffered defeat. Famously, the struggle was commemorated in The Wizard of Oz by Frank L. Baum. Rockoff provides a brilliant reading of how Baum encoded the gold standard battle in his modern fairy tale. Brian's defeat was a turning point in American political history, meaning that the 20th century opened under the sign of control rather than popular democratic mobilization. Twenty years later, the moment was commemorated by the anti-war poet Vahel Lindsay in the remarkable sentimental poem from Brian, 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 Vahel Lindsay, 1919. Election night at midnight, boy Brian's defeat, defeat of Western silver, defeat of the wheat, victory of letter files and plutocrats and miles with dollar signs upon their coats, diamond watch chains on their vest and spats on their feet, victory of custodians, Plymouth Rock and all that inbred and landlord stock, victory of the neat, defeat of the aspen groves of Colorado valleys. And The blue bonnets of old Texas by the Pittsburgh alleys. Defeat of the alfalfa and the mariposa lily. Defeat of the Pacific and the long Mississippi. Defeat of the young by the old and the silly. Defeat of tornadoes by the poison vats supreme. Defeat of my boyhood. Defeat of my dream. In the aftermath of defeat, Brian was unbowed. In an essay he published in December 1896, he offered a remarkable diagnosis of the effects of his campaign, a to the democratic politics of money and to the importance of throwing open the agenda of economic policy. As a rule, Bryan remarked, the moneyed interests have looked after our financial policy, while the rest of the people have quarreled over the tariff The Republican Party met in the convention last June and attempted, again, to give the tariff question preeminence. But when the Democratic, Populist, and Silver parties agreed in declaring for the free and unlimited coinage of gold and silver at the present legal ratio of 16 to 1, without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation, the Republicans found it impossible to confine discussion to the tariff issue. In fact... The silver question soon absorbed the public attention to such an extent that it became practically the sole political topic considered throughout the country. People discussed the present legal status of the silver dollar, the various laws affecting silver, the amount of production, the cost of production, etc., etc. To the world at large, this nation presented the interesting and inspiring sight of 70 millions of people thinking out their own salvation. Men who had never spoken in public before became public speakers. Mothers, wives, and daughters debated the relative merits of the single and the double standards. Business partnerships were dissolved on account of political differences. Bosom friends became estranged. Families were divided. In fact, we witnessed such activity of mind and stirring of heart as this nation has not witnessed before for 30 years. Foreign newspapers daily reported the progress of the campaign and students of political economy came from Europe to obtain a closer view of the struggle. It is probable that the money question has been studied within the last four months by more people than ever before in all the history of the world simultaneously engaged in its consideration. And what was the result of that study? Temporary defeat, but permanent gain for the cause of bimetallism. It was significant, Brian remarked, that pro silver sentiment was strongest where the question had been ventilated for some time, above all in the West and the South. In the Eastern states, the heart of America's business economy, debate of the money question had previously been silenced. In those states, both parties were against free coinage. Nearly all the leading newspapers were against it the banking interests were against it, the corporations were against it, and it was also opposed by those influential members of society who lived under the influence of the financial and corporate interests. The populist breakthrough at the 1896 convention overturned this repressive consensus. The Democratic Party in the East was reorganized, and though the silver cause went down to defeat, it made great strides. And... It was vital that this agitation should continue. Having defeated Brian, the defenders of gold demanded unconditional acceptance of the status quo. They complained that agitation disturbs business, and they accused the advocates of free coinage of stirring up discontent. But Brian retorted, Those who suffer because of the gold standard can hardly be expected to keep quiet and look pleasant. While the inquiry continues, they too want confidence restored, but it must be a confidence that their condition will be improved, not that their lot will be made still harder. Agitation is the only means by which wrong can be redressed under our form of government. The man who denounces agitation simply opposes the discussion of a public question, and the man who attempts to put a stop to the discussion of a public question confesses his hostility to our form of government. In a nation where the people govern, they must be free to consider any subject which concerns their welfare. The money question, Bryan insisted, transcends in importance any other economic question which can occupy the attention of the American people. When we determine the kind and quantity of money, we determine the level of prices, and the level of prices concerns every family in the land much less well-known than the cross of gold speech, Brian's retrospect on the campaign stands as a powerful justification for a democratic politics of money. It was eloquent and compelling, and it forces the question, what was the meaning of populism's defeat? What consequences did that defeat have at the time? These are questions of interpretation that are irreducibly political. They echo down to the present. Populism was defeated in 1896, America remained on the gold standard, but the early 20th century is widely seen as having been a period of reform. It was the era of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. It set the stage for the New Deal. To what political force can those changes be attributed? One political line characterized the era as one of progressive triumph. Progressives were middle-class reformers dedicated to forestalling the agrarian and grassroots mobilization of populism by means of technocratic reform. Another current that came to the fore in the aftermath of 1896 was what has been termed corporate liberalism. In this view, the force that stood behind the modernization of government was the increasingly consolidated power of American capitalism, expressed in the merger wave. Both progressive and corporate liberal readings of this historical moment minimize the role of populism and specifically the agrarian interests that it represented. But the populists have their defenders too. The most compelling counter-interpretation is by Elizabeth Sanders. For Sanders, the remarkable range of status measures enacted between 1910 and 1916, often associated with the New Freedom Agenda, crafted for Woodrow Wilson by Louis Brandeis, was, in fact, in large part, the work of Congressional populists. Bryan himself served in Wilson's administration as Secretary of State, pursuing an agenda of international conciliation in a vain effort to prevent the outbreak of World War I. At home, Wilson's progressive agenda was in large part the fruit of the agrarian mobilization. As Sander lucidly argues, it would be simplistic to imagine that the progressive, the corporate liberal, or the populist agenda would simply be carried into government policy. We need to consider a three-way configuration of forces, including extra-parliamentary pressure, congressional action, and the structures of governments themselves. As has recently been argued by Stefan Link and Naum Magor, the United States of the late 19th century was a developing nation. The agrarian mobilization of the 1890s cast a long shadow. The Fed in particular was a product of this balance of forces. The Wall Street lobby had its say, as did progressive technocrat ideas, but the Fed emerged in 1913 as a public body, with a governing board located in Washington, D.C. rather than Wall Street, and was viewed with deep suspicion by the financial lobby and announced as product of meddling populist impulses. Milton Friedman is well known as an exponent of the quantity theory of money. The godfather of the quantity theory in its modern form was Irving Fisher, who began his career at the time of the populist mobilization. Fisher sympathized with the critics of the gold standard. Clearly, adherence to gold did not produce a stable value of money. Instead, money's values rose inexorably against goods as prices fell. Tying the value of money to silver as well as gold, was a bit like trying to achieve stability by tying two drunks together. Rather than gold or a bimetallic metallic silver gold standard, Fisher, Fisher argued for a stabilized, compensated dollar. With hindsight, however, both Fisher and Friedman were willing to concede that the populists had a point. The urgent need was for a monetary expansion, by whatever means. If the world economy had not been boosted by a rash of gold discoveries in the 1890s, the technological innovations of the period might well have led even deeper into depression and crisis. The embrace of populist economics in the course of the later 20th century is indicative of a broader reevaluation, which in the hands of Elizabeth Sanders, amongst others, has a political edge, As Sanders remarked in 2009, Newspaper and television commentaries in the United States and Europe abound with references to outbursts of populism in the United States as a stereotypical American response to economic crisis. Their storylines trivialize historic populism in the U.S., both its substance and its contribution to financial regulation. In the wake of 2008, she hoped, against hope, that a reforming democratic administration might side with the pitchforks against the entrenched interests of finance and push for truly radical reform. Dodd-Frank was a bitter disappointment. But one can learn from the populists also in defeat. As Bryan remarked about 1896, campaigns to politicize and democratize money cannot be judged only by whether they come first at the polls. They are, as Selah Ben Habib might say, democratic iterations, part of an ongoing struggle and deliberation that draws recursively on its own history and precedents. If the crisis of 2008 did one thing, it ended the illusion that money could be unpolitical. In the years since, central banking choices have been debated and open to public scrutiny. The level of popular engagement is nowhere near that described, perhaps wishfully, by Bryan in 1896. But it is nonetheless novel, and, as the blog post by Jaeger and Mager attests, that process again and again recurs to the populist movement. As Jaeger and Mager remark, the populist story gives historical heft to some recent floated reform schemes. Central bank planning might already be here and simply be awaiting democratization, but is hardly unprecedented. Rather than a historical departure, the democratic empowerment of central banks could fulfill deep-seated democratic aspirations articulated by farmers, workers, and craftsmen in the turmoil of the first Gilded Age." So much to take away from this fabulous reading by Adam Toos. last part right here. We just ended. The First Gilded Age was in the late 19th century during the Long Depression. The Long Depression lasted from 1873 to 1896. It was a worldwide depression and it indeed may have been the very first worldwide depression. What, and what happened? In 1873 in the United States, and if I remember correctly, 1874 in Europe, both with the Latin Monetary Union, both economic zones eliminated silver as a monetary uh, government, as, mon- as money good for the government. So silver was put into a second-class status it's still good amongst people but if you wanted to pay at the higher levels for government or business no so all of a sudden money disappears 1873 you go into a terrible crisis that's just on par with 1929 and 2008 devastating deflationary money-destroying labor-destroying crisis worldwide you fall into a depression after enough time passes Agitation begins for inflation in the United States, as we just discussed, with the William Jennings Bryant movement. It didn't work. And you would I would think that there would be another battle very shortly thereafter. But miracle of miracles, the South African gold fields were discovered at just this time, and all of a sudden there was a shower of money upon the global economy. Miracle. Also, maybe the the populists wouldn't have won. Why? Because half of the population couldn't vote. Fast forward to our next global depression, the Great Depression, 1929 through 1947. What did we see? This time, the populist movement won. Silver made a comeback in the United States, and the gold standard was abandoned all over the world. Hard money was abandoned. Hard money that protected who? Who? The moneyed interest, the aristocrats, the elite. Why couldn't the elite aristocrats and, you know, know, just elite aristocrats, why couldn't they win? Because all of a sudden, half the democracy was expanded by half, by 50%, by 100%. Women could vote all of a sudden. Does that perhaps suggest that a hard money standard is incompatible with democracy? Fascinating. That's an idea that's brought up by Mr. Russell Napier from time to time when he points to not only the gold standard, but the Hong Kong currency board, which has remained in place. That's not a democracy. Whereas other currency boards, Argentina, is a democracy. Fascinating. So for those of you who are listening and heard me say that the fall of the gold standard should be blamed on women, please send all your complaints to Russell Napier okay fast forward another four generations and here we are again the third global depression of the last 150 years the silent depression why do i call it a silent depression because if a tree falls in the woods does it make a sound if there's no one there to hear it similarly if a global depression begins but the financial media and the politicians never acknowledge it can we say there's a depression yes but it's a silent one, one that must not be acknowledged. And here we are again pursuing inflationary policies that may be more humane, that may be the most humane solution amongst a selection of options, all of which are terrible. Now, the problem is that the central bankers are hapless and they don't know money, whereas back then it was very simple add silver, devalue gold, delink link from gold. Today they think, why don't we create a lot of bank reserves? Jesus. All right, you know, it's been 20 years in Japan and 15 years everywhere else, or 14. Enough. All right. But they're not the only ones. They're hapless. Meanwhile, we have feckless politicians who have their rear sectors in their heads because... They don't see that we're in a depression. Now, starting in 2014 in Europe and around the world thereafter, perhaps most obviously with the nomination of socialist Bernie Sanders and orange man Donald Trump and Brexit, and then all the other populists and outsiders and Visigoths that came to and or near power in Europe, In South America and across North America, we've had populists come to the front, but they've seemed to be unsuccessful to pursue a radical new monetary policy. There were a lot of protests, people forget, in 2019. Maybe that was going to be the next moment. Maybe there was going to be something that happened in 2020, especially because we were heading into recession all around the world. uh, Germany... Japan were already in recession, on the verge. It was imminent. As soon as the Q1 2020 results were getting published, recession was there. The United States was heading toward it as well. But everything was put on coast on account of the bubonic. And so now we're back. It's been sort of a reset, sort of a timeout. And here we start again. I have no confidence that we have escaped our worldwide depression. And I am certain that the discussion that we just went over about the 19th century will once again play out in the 21st century as we pursue some form of monetary inflation, whether it is government control of banks and the allocation of credit via political decisions or modern monetary theory or helicopter money. Unless we are going to discover The equivalent of the south african gold mines again and takes saves our rear sector uh we're going to be pursuing that policy and that is a shame for savers of course but guess who's not a saver the majority of the voting public and the government itself so it is in the government's interest to inflate away its debt it's in the vast majority of the private sectors and interest to inflate away the debt and perhaps because most most advanced economies are democratic perhaps hard money is simply not compatible with broad democracy especially during depression i hope you've enjoyed this particular reading and me rambling on and on and on if you haven't enjoyed me rambling on and on please let me know at emil kalinowski on twitter at Emil Kalinowski on Parler, at Emil Kalinowski on Getter.